Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites. Our weekly look at the environment, agriculture, our food, and our energy systems here in Maryland and beyond. And uh, today we're about to op- have a conversation with Dr. Donald Bosch. Don Bosch is president of the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science, who wrote a couple of years ago, Global Warming in the Free State, which was an incredibly impressive report about the effects of, of uh, climate change on our state. It came out in 2008. And when I was reading about the gigantic piece of uh, ice shelf falling off the Antarctic and other things were happening, I said, hmm, I wonder where we are today, uh, these uh, nine years later. And Don Bosch joins us now to talk about that. And Don, welcome. Good to have you back with us. It's very good to be with you, Mark. So 2008, nine years ago. So let's go back to reprise that report a moment and, and, and think about where we are now uh, after, after, that, after you wrote that. Um, I was reading a report last year from the EPA, I'm sure you're familiar with, what climate change means for Maryland, where they were talking about how the state has warmed one to two degrees in the last century, all these rainstorms that are heavier and more frequent, sea rising about one inch uh, every seven to eight years. So where are we since you wrote well, that? Yeah, well, Mark, we, we did that report. It wasn't just me. It was a, a number of other scientific experts who put the report together. Uh, as, a, as a part of Governor O'Malley's uh, executive order to uh, develop a plan of action for Maryland for climate change. And, and so our, our report was to look at the, the impacts, the potential impacts of climate change on Maryland. And that report served not only as a motivation uh, for the General Assembly to pass our you know, first Greenhouse Gas reduction, Emissions Reduction Act in, 19, in 2009, uh, which, of course, was amended to extend the goals to uh, last year. But it also served as the basis of the state's planning for what we call adaptation. You know, what, what do we do to the, the, the changing climate that is on us and that will be on us in the future? How can we better prepare ourselves and make our, make our communities uh, and economy more resilient? So it, it's had that effect, and, and we have uh, lots of plans that have been developed in Maryland uh, that have put us in a better position to anticipate the future. Meanwhile, as you said, you know, the science has continued to evolve and add uh, more certainty about climate change, number one. There was a, since we did our report, there was a national climate assessment that produced, you know, the same statistics that uh, you quoted from the EPA document that actually didn't only talk about future climate, but also talked about the clear trends and changes that we've been experiencing here in Maryland and elsewhere. Uh, so we're uh, the climate change, Maryland Climate Change Commission continues to exist and move on. I'm still the chair of the scientific and technical working group, and so we've been trying to assist the state to update our understanding of Maryland's changing climate and what it might portend as we as we move along. Particularly, and we can talk about this in a, in a bit. Uh, particularly about the issue you raised, the sea level rise. Mm-hmm. Well, I I'm going to come right to sea level sea level rise, but uh, it's interesting. The word you used early on and when you began to speak was adaptation, adaptability. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of real debate over what terms you use when we deal with the future of climate change. Uh, adaptability being one way of looking at it. Uh, people talk about resilience in climate change. People talk about adaptability being something that that is maybe the only way we can look at it now because of what our survival might mean. I mean – how do you how do you look at that in practical? Well, I, I think I think the other word that that confuses a lot of people that's used in the climate change business is mitigation. Correct. And right. That, that word is used to talk about the things that we do, like reducing our greenhouse gas emissions, that limit the climate change we will have to deal with. So we think about, in simple terms, limiting the amount of climate change that we'll have to contend with, and then dealing with or adapting to the climate change it would provide. And what Maryland's approach to it, I think, is the right approach, is that you can't, you can't do, just do one without the other. Um, first of all, climate has already changed, and it's going to be changing despite what we do about it in the short run. Uh, so we have, to, uh, we have to manage the unavoidable. But also we have to avoid the unmanageable, that is, to take steps now to avoid uh, really disastrous conditions later in the century uh, and beyond. And so th- these are uh, both you know, sides of the same coin. 
So I'm curious about a couple of things here. Let's talk a minute about sea level rise and and where it is, how much more severe has it gotten or less so since 2008? What are the projections? What are your thoughts? Well, several things. Since we did our report, uh, some uh, sciences produced results locally that 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 have demonstrated that that, that along the mid-Atlantic coast, we are having a bit a faster rate of sea level rise than elsewhere in this country. You know, as you would expect, even adjusting for the, the relative rates of rates of land sinking. And and so the reason that scientists think that 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 is the case, and it's not a huge difference, but it's a, it's something we have to pay attention to, is it may be related to a slowing down of the of the flow of the Gulf Stream off our coast, uh, which which is uh, you know long predicted to be one of the uh, one of the consequences of a warming planet. Uh, the processes up in the North Atlantic, which drive the circulation of the Gulf Stream, both because the sea is becoming warmer and as well as the ice is melting in, in northern climes, um, the, that, that ocean isn't turning over as fast. So we're, we're seeing that on local scales. The other thing that you mentioned, of course, is that we have been, scientists have become uh, focusing much more attention on the, these two remote regions of the world that are going to determine our future, at least in terms of sea level rise, that is Greenland and Antarctica. And in both cases, we have new evidence that not only do we have you know, ice melting, as you can think, the, you know, the, the air above it getting warmer and there's more melt, uh, melting from uh, these, the Greenland, uh, you know, many uh, videos and pictures of that. But, but the other thing we've, we've got a, a better understanding of is that as the ocean warms, around those landmasses, even small amounts of warming, it is kind of melting <laughs> the, the edge of these ice sheets from, a, from below, you know, wa- warmer ocean water underli- mm-hmm. underlying them. So you might have seen in the news recently these big chunks of ice shelves breaking off in, 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 in Antarctica as a result of this, you know, these, these, you know, these cracks that are <laughs> breaking these uh, sheets that are the size of Manhattan off. And shift in, and they're floating out to the ocean. So that is one of the things that we uh, are concerned about. So the good news of that, if there is good news, is that the science has indicated that we can avoid the worst case of that happening, at least at least in the short term, list you know through the rest of this century, by uh, limiting the amount of warming. So if we take the the constrain our global warming to the level that we and 193 other countries agreed to in Paris a little over years ago, that is, keep the increase in our global mean temperature below 2 degrees C. If we're able to do that, and it can be done, it's not going to necessarily be easy, but it can be done, we can avoid that worst-case scenario. And when you say if that can be done, I mean, that's way beyond Maryland's... uh... Um, ability. I mean, we can we can do our part in terms of the laws that we pass um, for for cleaner energy and more, but it, it, it's beyond us, really. Exactly. It's it's an all hands on deck challenge. It involves not only the state, but it involves local governments doing things that make a difference. It involves our, obviously our national government, uh, and and they're they're in the, the concern that that a lot of people have about the new administration might not be less interested in moving forward in that front, and it involves the actions of the other nations of the world. But we have an agreement, and if we all can hold uh, each other nations accountable, uh, we can make uh, progress in doing that. Maryland, of course, you know, if you think about it, Mark, uh, we have the highest educational attainment in the, in, the, in the richest, most powerful country in the world here in Maryland, the highest income levels. So if we don't do it, we don't show some leadership uh, for the nation and the world, who, who will? Right, no, exactly. And I, and I think that but, that but that same battle exists here. I mean, we, uh, the legislation was passed under O'Malley uh, to increase our use of alternative energy, uh, was um, vetoed by the governor. That was over – the override took place. So that battle is taking place still over what is really needed and both the kind of 
practical and philosophical differences over what global warming means. Exactly. So, so in Maryland, let, let's not talk about the, 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 the challenge that we have on the national level. Let's just talk about Maryland. Yeah, fine. That's right. Uh, right. We have, we have the, the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act of 2009 that was passed under when Governor O'Malley was governor. That really was the recommendation of the of the Maryland Climate Change Commission. Then the commission under Governor Hogan last a uh, little over well a little over a year ago uh, came out we with a report which reassessed the situation and said yes, you know we're we're making progress we're actually on target to meet our, our 20, uh, 2020 goals, uh, but we need to set the next goal. So we set a, we recommended a goal of a forty percent reduction by twenty thirty. That was uh, considered, and last year the Greenhouse Gas Emissions Act was uh, extended and amended to include that new aggressive goal. It was the second bill in the, in last year's General Assembly that was signed by the governor. So here we have, I think, I think, I think we feel quite proudly of the fact that we've got a consensus of of yes, we have a problem, and and a commitment that this is what we need to do about it. So. I think what you're going to see is a lot of debate over how to get there, okay? So uh, Governor Hogan vetoed at the end of the session, the same session he signed the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Act, Emissions Reduction Act, at the end he vetoed the Renewable Portfolio Standards legislation that, 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 you, that you referred to. And then, of course, this year the General Assembly overrode it, so it's now the law, and, we'll, you know, these are the kinds of, debates about what is the best way to get there that I think we need to be focusing on rather than whether we have a problem and what we and what are the what are the goals we need to shoot for so I, I'm curious your, your your thoughts and a scientist's thoughts on on weather and our state um, I was talking about this with a, actually a farmer the other day we were talking about the spring weather we're experiencing here at the moment. Uh, in Maryland and the heavy rains that we've experienced, ex- increasingly heavy rains. And the response for the farmer was, uh, my friend was, well, look, this always happens. We go through fluctuations. This is not climate change. It's nothing to do with that. This is just the fluctuations of the weather is how we've existed for forever. I remember them as a child. So, I mean, so what is really fluctuation of weather that are patterns right. that maybe this have been the same over the last several hundred years, and what we're facing now, the heavy rains, this weather now, is that climate change, or is it just a fluctuation of weather? That, that's exactly right. So any one um, event, it's really hard to say it's related to climate change, this is there, cause, because these variations in weather that you refer to have taken place forever and will take place forever. What climate is, are sort of the average conditions over time, over longer periods of time than just a year or just a week or a month or even a year. So if we look at the longer trend, it is crystal clear that that we have uh, an undeniable, significant, and probably unprecedented, at least in terms of human history, warming trend in the world. And it's manifest in the fact that, you know, Last year, 2016, was the warmest year in record, and it broke the record set by 2015 and, and so on. So, so, so there's really no, no – should be no debate about whether there is warming taking place. Furthermore, it, the science is pretty is pretty, it's very solid that this is almost totally due to human activity. There isn't some you know, other big cosmic issue going on with respect to the sun – intensity, uh, that the effect of human activities is far greater than that. So we, we have a clear picture, and it's manifest even on local scales. So we have the, the EPA report you referred to talks about the changing average temperature, averaged over decades, that we see in Maryland. It talks about the increase in the incidence of severe rainstorms. Not necessarily totally in, in um, although it's been increasing, it's less statistically so. Uh, so in terms of total rainfall for, for, for the year, but more of the rain is coming down in, in you know, heavier rainfall situations. So there's good statistical evidence, climatic evidence, rather than weather evidence, that this trend is going on. So any one incident, you know, Ellicott City... You know, the floods there. Right, right. And you say that that was due to climate change? I don't think so. 
but you can say that it's consistent with the kind of increases in those events that we that we see and will expect more of in the future. I think that's where um, a lot of confusion uh, lives for people, just how, how, to, how to parse that out. Because um, the, the arguments people hear on both sides and people, get, I think, really get very confused um, about that. And if you look at our waterways, I mean, let's talk about the, the, the danger of sea level rising and, and right. where that is and how that may affect the, the, the freshwater wetlands and, and saltwater right. marshes. I mean, what, what do we know about that at this moment and how yeah, has that so, changed? So since we wrote the report in 2008, there's been a, a, a large body of literature, uh, scientific literature, published on sea level rise that is getting be- getting us a better understanding of what the prob- what is the probability uh, that sea level what sea level rise may be uh, into the future, and and um, so we have uh, from that report in 2013, our scientists got together and did an update and gave some new estimates, projections of sea level rise that are now used in the state's planning efforts. So we have a, we have a, uh, a law in the state that requires state, the state government, you know, to be show, um, to show leadership, by example, of, of determining whether we, we're going to be building state buildings and infrastructure that is consistent with those projections of sea level rise. So they have to now go through a review, which uses the scientifically determined uh, uh, sea level rise projections that we uh, that we came up with. Now we're actually uh, refining those already, because <clears throat> we're, what we're trying to do is to deal with this issue I raised earlier. Is that a lot of it that future depends on us and what we do with limiting our emissions? So in these new projections, we have a scenario which is sort of business as usual. If we continue to increase global emissions at the rate they've been going, this is, you know, late late in the century. These are the kinds of conditions in terms of high temperatures and heat waves and sea level rise and so on that we're likely to get. And if we, but if we actually achieve the objectives that the world agreed to, 99% of the nations responsible for 99% of the emissions agreed to, constrain the, the increase in global mean temperature below 2 degrees C. This is the sea level rise that we have. And there are some significant differences either, either in this century. Basically, it means for Maryland, by the, toward the latter part of the century, whether we'll have something like around a 2-foot sea level rise as opposed to a 3- or 4-foot sea level rise. That's a huge difference. <laughs> yeah, right. right. Uh, so, I mean, and, and I think that the question is how much you can mitigate. I mean, one of the things that you wrote in the report in 2008 that you all wrote in 2008 uh, had to do with how difficult the Chesapeake and Coastal Bay restoration could be um, if things get worse, um, how there could be serious changes in species um, right. it, because of warming and 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 what happens when the water becomes more acidic because of warming? And so, what if, what changes have happened over the last nine years that you can quantify? Uh, and how does that? Uh, where, where does that stand now? Well, you, you're right. There, there. Uh, in fact, the Chesapeake Bay program is going through a process where they're trying to assess how climate change uh, makes a difference in terms of achieving our pollution diet objectives. You know, the, the that were that were the TMDL that you, you're familiar with. Uh, and and it makes it more challenging to, to be sure, particularly particularly um, if if there's a uh, much of a, a change or an in, particularly an increase in, in in freshwater runoff from more there's more rain and more snow and therefore there's more runoff coming down the Susquehanna and other other rivers that makes that it brings more pollutants down it makes it more makes it more difficult. But one of the, the you mentioned some susceptible species. There was just a recent scientific paper published just uh, two weeks ago, uh, looking at a very important species in Maryland and in, in the Chesapeake Bay called eelgrass. These are these grass beds that we're trying to get, you know, to come back and mm-hmm. improve, improve the, you know, reduce the pollution to have them come back as they provide critical habitat. And eelgrass is a is a species that lives, you know, in the from the middle part of the bay on down south. It it, it doesn't like the fresher water in the upper parts of the bay. So 
it was when I started out working in the Chesapeake Bay, which was back in the in the late '60s. Eelgrass was found well up to Solomon's uh, and up the eastern shore uh, into uh, in up to Dorchester. Eelgrass is not found that far up anymore, and and the reason these scientists found out is the double stress of of first of all the increased pollution, which is which is reduced the amount of light coming down. These are plants that require light to photos produce you know through photosynthesis to live, and so. There's less light coming down, so they can't live as deep as they did. Then finally, they just get extinguished. But also the warming, because eelgrass is a species that we're kind of on its southern end of its range, mm-hmm. and it's kind of it's summer. Summer is pretty stressful for it because of the high temperatures we have. So in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, from when my predecessors uh, first started measuring temperature down at the pier at our Chesapeake Biological Laboratory in Solomon back in the 30s, especially from 1950s on to the present, we've had about a three-degree Fahrenheit increase in mean uh, temperature in the bay waters. That much? Yeah, which means that, you know, we have less less cold, less really severe cold. We have less ice on the bay. I mean, most people who travel the Bay Bridge can get a sense of that. We haven't had major ice uh, coverage in the bay for some time now. But it also means that we have more stressful summer conditions, especially in shallow waters where these where these grass beds are. So, um, the, the the future of of sensitive species like that are, is not not very good. And uh, so, this is one one example of how the warming of the bay is it will be affecting the changes that we uh, we will see. So, what, what the, the 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 there are other factors here too. I mean, if you combine the issues that we're facing around climate change in the state of Maryland, along with the the runoff and other kind of pollution, uh, polluting factors in the bay and our environment, the the loss of as we've been reading more about recently, the the the, the loss of um, of forests in the state of Maryland and the changing forests from hardwoods to to fir trees to softwood. Um, I mean, there's, so there there are a lot of factors here that are affecting. Uh, the bay and the and and the land it's in the air itself it's it, it's it's not just, it's climate change that is is being affected also by all these other factors right 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 so if you look at where we are today and there's present battles over the 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 the, the, the arguments now taking place over oyster sanctuaries and 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 the like um, I mean how does that fit into all this. Well, I think I think we have to we have to look at these things uh, in toto and, and you know and how they interact rather than just one uh, one factor or one issue at a time. And let me just start. You started with forests. Uh, you know, there's legislation uh, being debated in the General Assembly uh, now uh, about um, the need to reverse that loss of forests, which is all you know. I think most of us would support and understand is necessary. But but part of that debate is okay. As we we need more forests, what do we? What are the conflicts with uh, space uses such such as uh, solar farms, where we need space to put you know solar collectors to have more renewable energy, and and rather than just thinking of it as you know is we just need more forests just as it is or more solar, we need to find out how we can manage those two things together. Just as an example. With oysters, you know, we, we have we have the uh, populations of oysters in the bay. Depending on the scientific paper you can cite, uh, range from one percent to much less than one percent of what they were historically. And, and yet, we're still sort of fighting over them, like like it's the you know the crop the, the resource we had back in the 19th century. So there's needs to be much more emphasis on doing what we can to rebuilding the stocks, rebuilding the oysters in the bay, rather than continuing to, uh, to to make sure we're not we're not out there working against that by harvesting all of the the larger reproductively active oysters uh, that we can catch. So that's why we have this sanctuary uh, strategy uh, where we've put aside. Something like 24% of the productive bottom that could produce oysters, 
uh, in the bay into sanctuaries and no harvest. And now we have, of course, the effort by the traditional harvesters. They they want to open those up and and uh, and harvest them. So th- this is these are the debates we will we are having and will have. But it, they need to be put into the context of not only the oyster industry but the oyster population, you know itself. And then within that, the whole ecosystem and the role oysters play in providing habitat and filtering and the like. We've been here talking with Dr. Donald Bosch. Don Bosch is president of the University of Maryland Center for Environmental Science. And given the battles and arguments we're having over climate change now, we wanted to spend a little bit of time and maybe more time again very soon in, in a longer conversation looking back at the report that they wrote in 2008 on climate change and the state of Maryland, which we will be linking to. Uh, and Don Bosch, let me thank you once again for taking your time with us. We really do look forward to continuing conversations. Great to be with you and your listeners, Mark. Thanks. Welcome back, folks. This is still Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites, our weekly look at food and farming, our environment and energy. Uh, and as we left that last conversation, we talked a bit about oysters and the effect that climate change and more are having on the oyster population. Uh, and now we're going to get right into the question of oyster. The oyster wars in Maryland have been going on for centuries, uh, from the oyster wars almost 100 or so years ago to the differences in how we survive and grow our oyster population and continue that industry here in the state of Maryland. We're joined by Robert T. Brown, who is president of the Maryland Watermen's Association, and Dr. Allison Colden, who is the Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Maryland Fisheries Scientist. And Robert T. and Allison, welcome. Good to have you both with us here. Thank you for having me. So the, 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 the latest battle, it seems to me, that the, the confrontation is over the, let, over the proposal by Governor Larry Hogan um, to open sanctuaries in certain locations for oyster harvesting. Uh, and as they said, the DNR, the folks at the Department of Natural Resources have said that this is only the first part of the proposal. This has, could have many iterations. This may not be where it en- ends up. But this is something called rotational uh, harvesting uh, of oysters. So let's talk a bit about where we are about this. I mean, I know that Robert T. Bowen, Robert T., you've been – you and, and the watermen in general have had your issues with sanctuaries to start with. So, but it seems to me this is that your position on this is a, I couldn't is is not quite against what the government's doing, but not quite for it. So, talk a bit about where where you are with all this. Well, right now at the present time, uh, we're just starting into it. Uh, the sanctuaries were put into effect back in 2010, uh, like uh, the end of sometime in September, and. After a five-year period, uh, which they were set in for, then we had uh, we had a study to see what was the effects on it. You know what was good and what was bad, and uh, the study was completed. And now we're going through the study. And when the bill was drafted up, uh, this was before Governor Hogan was in there. The uh, uh, it, it says to come up with an oyster management plan for the state of Maryland, and that's what we are in the process of doing now. And it's not going to be no easy task for either either side. I don't know if you want to say sides that's on it, but uh, there's going to be some opposition and, you know, and different opinions on who who believes what is working the best. Where do you see this? And this is a, I, remember, I remember we covered this with some intensity here on the Steiner Show before Soundbites even existed, um, the, the question of oyster harvesting and the creation of sanctuaries, which was opposed by a lot of folks. So what, what, your response to Governor Hogan's wanting to open some of this up? Sure. Well, first, I'd like to just say that that Robert T. Mm-hmm. had done a, a pretty good job of sort of outlining the history of this issue. So like he mentioned in 2010, these oyster sanctuaries were put in place with the caveat that there would be a review after five years. Um, one of the things that I think um, going into this uh, that maybe has been lost sight of is the fact that it said suggest changes if necessary. Um, not necessarily that after five years there would be some sort of over overarching overhaul of the program, 
that wasn't necessarily outlined um, back in 2010, but it was outlined that there would be this five-year review. Um, and from that five-year review, what we have seen um, is that sanctuaries are working by a number of different metrics. Um, they are working. They are growing the oyster population. They are increasing the capacity of that population to produce more oysters. And so for that reason, um, that's why we are concerned about the proposal that has come down um, that suggests that we would possibly open up these sanctuaries to harvest. So, and I guess your argument, Robert T., is not not just necessarily about opening up these sanctuaries for harvesting, but your question, unless I have it completely wrong, which I just might, um, but you're questioning whether or not we need the sanctuaries at all? Well, uh, let's just back up a little bit. All right, uh, sure. Uh, the, uh, you know, when you take and dump $26 million into Harris Creek, you're going to see some, uh, with the amount of uh, oysters and shells and hard to tell how many stones that they planted in there, which we're still having problems with that, with boats running aground and tearing their boats up that hasn't been corrected yet. But the uh, oysters in there, uh, they're not doing as good as the one in the creek next to it, Broad Creek, where we're having harvest every year because the bottom is being worked up some. Uh what 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 are, and another thing on these oyster sanctuaries, the uh, they concentrated all their funds. I guess it was somewhere in the excess of forty million dollars into three places, and that's probably only twenty fifteen or twenty percent, maybe fifteen percent of the bottom that they got. If it's fifteen percent, and all these other areas that they have not done any work with at all, are the places that we are looking at possibly come up with some rotational harvest. You know, we go in there, we harvest a little bit, we replant it with uh, our county funds from our that we get from uh, the Department of Natural Resources from our licenses and uh, our oyster tax, and run it like a business uh, would be ran. Uh, I mean, the days of going and catching whatever you can catch is over with. Uh, we need to manage our resource and. We're not talking about going in and possibly opening it up for an entire season, uh, a few areas. We're talking about maybe a couple weeks before Thanksgiving when the market is good, a couple weeks before Christmas, and maybe a couple weeks on the other. And what that will do is that you can go in and you can harvest some of the larger oysters uh, that are there, a uh, very minimal amount with the limited stuff we've got. And uh, we need shells for our oyster bars to to help build some of the places up that it's sanded and uh, silted over. And we have a shortage of shells, and that's, you know, sanctuaries use a lot of shells. They need to start producing some shells. Uh, uh, you know, we our shell supply is very limited. Allison? Well, um, I would like to say that of the sanctuaries that have been closed since 2010 without investment, those are the ones listed in DNR's five-year report that are seeing improvement over time, that are seeing the that highest – not invested in? That's right. What do, you, what do you mean? So not invested in, meaning mm -hmm. that DNR has not taken um, active role in going out and putting out shell or putting out seed oysters in those areas. They were just close to harvest. And the fact that those areas are recovering and in some places reaching the highest biomass in the 26-year time series that DNR has shows us that the limiting factor really is harvest because even without Further investment by the state, these areas are recovering and producing more oysters and larger oysters just by the simple fact of stopping harvest in those so areas. You're, you're arguing that, Allison. I'll let you come right back in here, Robert T., just to be clear about what you're saying. Okay, look. So, you know, uh, let, me, let me just, just ask a question. I'll let you jump right back in, Robert T. Um, okay. So, so, look, so, uh, in uh, reply to that, the places she had, she's talking, Allison is talking about uh, that have uh, improved, are places which are our natural, we use for natural seed areas for oysters. I mean, part of the program when they took it, they took 24% of our bottoms, but they took 75% of our best bottoms. They took our seed areas where we used to plant shell and remove it all through the state. So you're taking a place that you can't uh, have a failure in those places. But if you go up the bay a little bit, go up to uh, Chesapeake Beach, uh, in that area, Holland Point, uh, uh, 
no little to no recruitment there at all. And the bottom is, it's it's something like a garden. If you plant a garden and you don't go out and work it, you're not going to get many vegetables out of it. If you work it, it'll it, it you will you will see the profit that you can get into it. And what I mean by that is the shells are not being worked. The silt and sand is covering them up some. And we're going back, and when you work at some, you pull the shells out, so you still be laying on top of the ground, so they can catch some strike if it's in that area. So, Allison, how, what's your response? So, how, how differently do you see that? Well, uh, frankly, that is sort of a notion that's been around for a long, a long time. That you have to work the bottom in order to get the oyster shell out of the silt and out of the sand. And uh, in many of this harvested areas, it's true that a lot of the oyster shell is covered by sand, is covered by sediment, and will not do well in terms of catching the oysters uh, that want to settle on them because they need that good, clean shell. But the fact of the matter is, is that oysters don't normally grow that way. Um, Oysters, as we know them as a species and as we've known them in the Chesapeake Bay historically, grow on these large three-dimensional oyster reefs. So oysters, uh, generation after generation, will attach on top of one another and over time will form these very tall reefs off the bottom. And in that case, you wouldn't need to do anything like work an oyster bed because they are so far off the bottom that they are not being affected by that silt and sediment. And not only that is it reduces the stress on the oysters because they're not being affected by that silt and sediment. So if we were to allow these oyster beds to recover to sort of a natural state like they used to look like, we wouldn't have to worry about siltation or sediment or anything like that because they would be far enough off the bottom they wouldn't be impacted. Look like – Allison makes this question. Look like when? Look, look like uh, 50 years ago? Look like 100 years ago when things really started uh, – the oyster population are dying? Look like 200 years ago when they were popping out of the water? Look like when? What are you talking about? Probably about um, – it's probably been about 200 or so years or more since we've seen these large upthrusting oyster reefs. We've been – oystering in the Chesapeake Bay for a very long time. And every single time that you um, drag a dredge over one of these oyster bars, you are taking down the height of that reef by removing not only the oysters, but by breaking up the clumps of oysters and the, the habitat that they've created. So by doing that, you're basically knocking that oyster reef down. And over hundreds of years, what we've gotten down to is now basically bare sediment with just a little bit of shell on top um, that is really susceptible to the types of issues that Robert T. has been talking about. So Robert T. may ask this question. So if, if let's, say, let's take Allison's argument for a moment. And, and if you allow the oyster beds to grow the way she's describing, would that in the long term – be better for the oyster industry than dredging in places where the sanctuaries are now, even in, in, in the idea of rotation? Well, you know, uh, Allison went back in her comments 200 years ago, uh, what was happening. Uh, 200 years ago, we didn't have no blacktop roads. 200 years ago, uh, we didn't have uh, uh, bridges. We didn't have... Uh, millions and millions of houses that we've got on the watershed now. So, I mean, you've got to take all that into consideration. And however these mounds that they've got, that they've made, they've made one into uh, Harris Creek there, or a couple of them. Uh, but uh, they spent $26 million in that creek. And it's not feasible to do the rest of the bay on what few acres that they did in there, piling the, the stone up and putting a shell on it. It's, uh, I would like to compare it to like uh, uh, Harris Creek and something like uh, Mount Rushmore. We got one Mount Rushmore, we got one Harris Creek. Uh, the environmentalists said that this was what we needed to do to take it back. Uh, number one, we don't have that type of money to put into it all these places. Number because it would, wouldn't take, they took 40 million just for that one creek. It would take billions of dollars to do the bay like that. And what we need to do is you you got to remember, Mother Nature, she's very resilient and she adopts a whole lot. But however, with uh, the amount of uh, pollution and stuff we have in all the storage treatment plants, and, you know, that's just a fact of life is what we got. And 
you know, there's got to be a happy medium in between. You know, they've got some places like where all this federal money is going that will never be touched. And we got places where we want to try to invest some of our money in so that we can uh, uh, work into it and uh, get it going. I mean, so, so I mean, how do you respond to that? I mean, because we are in a different environment. The, 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 um, many people would argue no matter what you do, you're not going to come back to the way the oyster beds were because we're just not there from climate change to all the sewage issues to farm runoff to everything else we were talking about. Right. And I think the whole point is we don't have to be that way with the large oyster beds everywhere. It doesn't have to cover every square inch of the bottom. What we're talking about right now and what's in sanctuary right now is only 24% of the productive oyster bottom that's left. And why is that important for your, from your perspective? Because what we're showing is that it's a very small percentage of the productive oyster bottom that we have and that's currently protected. And what we can get out of those areas is a lot more than what we would get out of those areas if they're harvested. What we can get out of those areas if we leave them intact is more oyster production. Those oyster larvae uh, ride around on the currents throughout the bay for two to three weeks before they settle. So they have the capability of going as far as miles from where they were they, where they were hatched and ending up seeding a reef in another completely different part of the bay. So we have the capability of increasing the overall number of larvae that we have in the system by growing those oyster populations, growing those larger oysters, um, and allowing them to reproduce. We have the ability to evolve disease resistance over time. Um, it's not going to happen quickly, but it is happening, and it has been shown in Virginia that those sort of things can happen within our lifetime. Um, and we have the ability to provide habitat for fish, crabs, uh, other species that is not happening in harvested areas because they just don't have that sort of three-dimensional mound structure that you can either develop um, over very long periods of time on its own, as it did through millennia in the past, but also, um, like Robert T. mentioned, in the restoration tributaries, uh, we're sort of kick-starting that process by doing these types of restoration projects. And we don't have money or funds to do it throughout the Bay, but the good news is that we do have federal investment currently, uh, have federal investment and federal buy-in to help the state work on those sorts of projects. And we do have the 2014 Bay Watershed Agreement in which the state of Maryland agreed that they would do this for five targeted tributaries in the state of Maryland. And we currently have three selected that work has been ongoing. And we have two more. And we need to make sure that we are fulfilling the obligations that we have under that agreement. So long term, Robert T., why does it not make sense from your perspective to keep these Three sanctuaries, now five, they should be, according to the agreement, growing while you while while the men and women who harvest the oysters do it in other parts of the bay. Well, see, you gotta get back to the main part of this is the three areas that's got the federal money into it that they have built these uh, uh sanctuaries that we're not even after those. We're not after it. That's what a lot of people don't get. We're not after that. We're after the places that have not had the investment into them yet. Let us invest some of our money into it so we can get it. And as far as it goes, we're talking about we need two more agreements, uh, uh, two more rivers to meet the agreement of this watershed. We get in bad agreements sometimes because what Maryland does and what Virginia does when you make an agreement is as much differences as apples and uh, tomatoes. Because Virginia takes a small sanctuary and puts it in the middle of an oyster bar off to the side of it, and they work all around it. In our places, we cut the river off near the mouth, and you can't work nowhere into it, or you take the whole top half of it. So, I mean, uh, what Virginia does, they say they'll have two rivers. Let us do the same amount of work that Virginia does in their two rivers to make it an equal uh, uh, equation on this. But, I mean, we'll go and do far more. And I don't mind doing more because, it, you know, it, uh, hopefully it all helps to better the river. But when you make an agreement, you should have both be on the same playing field. So, I mean, uh, and I'll tell you again, we are not after the sanctuaries with the federal money into it. We are in after places that have not had no investment into them. I'll give you one good example where we used to have over there to Holland Point. The first of the season, all the boats used to go to it uh, all up and down the bay. 
Okay, we had great uh, Old Rock, Great Dead Tomatoes, Chesapeake Beach, which we called one of our major bars, which we planted it and kept it closed for five years, and the whole fleet worked there. In December, I've got pictures of when it was so many boats in the Chesapeake Beach right there in that little harbor you could walk from one of the creek to the other. So, I mean, we, we need to manage the oyster. We need to do what is best for the oyster. And best for the oyster is working some of the bottom up, and harvest some, not harvest it down like we do in some places right now. We've been very fortunate. When our oyster industry got bad, not because of over-harvesting, but because of MSX and Dermo. Back in 2003 and four, our harvest was down to 23,000 bushels or 26,000. Now, uh, a couple of years ago, it was up to 400,000 for a couple of years. I think it was 300,000 bushels last year, and this year, It'll probably be maybe a little less because we have disease that started back in our rivers again. And that's another reason you need to harvest some of these big oysters to get some of the disease out of it. In our lower parts of, of the place where we've been doing better at, the disease has just been so prevalent that in some places you've got 30 to 40% death rate of your big oysters. Well, I mean, so, we, I mean, disease hasn't went anywhere. So, let me tell you about Alice before we run out of time here to, to let you re- respond. I mean, I know that the, the oyster population has been... I mean, fluctuated drastically. I mean, from the early 1800s when there were 15 million bushels of oysters a year to the diseases that happened, plus the runoff, anything that where people argue where Dermo came from and how it happened. But what what, what caused that, but it, it did dump it down. It's back up to like a half a billion now, 400,000, as, as, as Robert T. was saying. But so what, what's your response? Well, I think it's a great point for Robert T. to point out that in the last few years, the harvest did increase dramatically over what the sort of 10-year average was before that, which shows that even with 24% of the bottom in sanctuary, um, the harvest has tripled, and so has the number of, of watermen in the fishery. So it's obvious that even with this with this um, small percentage of the bottom closed in sanctuary, that these guys are, are still making a living because the number of watermen in the fishery increased overall during that time period. But more importantly, I think we should point out that right now we're sort of um, really closely tied to the environmental conditions. And if we had a larger oyster population, a recovered oyster population, a resilient oyster population, there would be a little bit less of this extreme variability in what our populations look like from year to year. Because right now they're really closely responding to those environmental conditions. And it would be both better for the ecosystem and better for a consistent income level for the watermen if we had a population level that could sort of resist some of those swings that we see that happen from year to year because disease is always going to happen. Um, you know, freshwater pulses that can kill some oysters are always going to happen. Those sorts of pressures will always be there. So we don't have to manage the fishery to respond to those pressures. We have to manage the fishery to um, be sustainable in the face of those pressures. So we only have a couple minutes left here. So let me ask you both, just take literally a minute apiece to kind of close out. And where you think this is, that that if either one of your arguments took hold, and given that the governor's administration is not really happy with sanctuaries, you can tell that they lean up, uh, like, away from the idea, like O'Malley's administration leaned toward that idea. And you've got a new administration in Washington where the EPA may not be overseeing things the way they did before. Uh, given uh, um, Mr. Pruitt, who's now going to run the uh, EPA, paint a scenario for the, for the next year or two. Where do you think it's going to go and what do you think that would mean? We literally have a couple minutes left, like two minutes apiece here, uh, and we have to close out. So, Robert T., why don't you start, then we'll go over to Allison Calden. Well, you, you know, it's, uh, I agree, you know, disease is something that we can't uh, control. Fresh is something we can't control. As far as a disease-resistant uh, oyster, that is, I guess you just dream it when you try to get that because that's just Mother Nature being Mother Nature. One of the main things, we want a little bit of this bottom, and we want to plant. We want to invest some money in it. Let me get that straight. We want to invest some money into it. We want to catch a few oysters. We need shells. It'll help produce shells. You need shells for the sanctuaries. You need it for aquaculture. You need it for the public fishery. And t- take a few of these oysters out. And then what we're talking about in a rotation, we will plant it, then we close it for four years. Then we work on another little piece, plant it, and close it for four years. So you're almost back to a sanctuary in these places to start with. 
I mean, this is a new concept we got. It's working in some places down in Virginia. St. Mary's in Charles County has already started a small program of it into the Wacomica River there, and uh, hopefully that that'll turn it around. We've got to manage the oyster different than what we've been doing it into the past. And as far as it goes, as far as uh, back in the 1990s when you had, we never had no regulations on it. We are regulated so heavy with size limits and quotas, uh, not quotas, but daily limits and size limits and season cuts. So, I mean, and we'd have nowhere near the man force that we have working now. And, yes, we did get 400,000 uh, bushel there a couple years ago, two years in a row. And if we'd had that other 25%, we would have ended up, we would have went way over a million bushels. However, with these sanctuaries, if we can get six weeks a year in some type of rotation and get me going, that takes the pressure off our public grounds we've got now to help them rebuild, because that would take a month and a half season off of them. And we're just trying to manage it as a business, and it, we're going to have to work together through it and stuff, and it, we're going to have our ins and outs on it. So, Allison Colton? So I think we can um, both say, and Robert T., correct me if I'm wrong, but the goal is to eventually have a recovered oyster population, sustainable fishery in the Chesapeake Bay. And I think that we can agree that that's a goal that we're all working towards. Um, That being said, um, we think that rotational harvest could be a good fishery management strategy on the public fishery bottom. There's 76% of the public fishery bottom available in which to make these sorts of investments that Robert T. is talking about and and do that rotational harvest management scheme. And in that way, they'll be able to make those investments, reap what you sow, and sort of um, still reap the benefits that we're seeing coming out of the oyster sanctuary. Um, Overall, I think that we need to be taking the long-term view and that even harvesting within the sanctuaries and establishing some sort of rotational harvest management plan is a really short-term sort of um, look at things. And so taking the long view, we know from the best available peer-reviewed science at this point from DNR's uh, five-year report that the sanctuaries look like they're doing well. But we want, moving forward, the best scientific-based management for the oyster resource for all of its benefits, not just its harvest value. And so um, hopefully, moving forward, we'll be able to, to have that in hand and, and make the best decisions that we can for the resource. So I'm going to thank Dr. Allison Colden, Chesapeake Bay Foundation's Maryland Fisheries Scientist, and Robert T. Brown, uh, President of the Maryland Watermen's Association, for joining us today here on the Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites. Robert T. and Allison, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. The Mark Steiner Show and Soundbites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media, made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our senior producer is Mark Gunnery. Our producer is Amani Spence. Our research producer is Calvin Perry. Our production assistant is Nadia Ramlagan. Our intern from Morgan State University is Michael Dixon. And our engineer is Andre Melton. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Please send me your thoughts about today's program to talk at steinershow.org. The podcast is Steiner Show and share it with your friends. Visit us on the web at steinershow.org or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. I'm Mark Steiner. Take care.